Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast. I'm Anna Bogutska. I'm the co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. I am also a lifelong David Cronenberg fan. And let me tell you, it is a good time to be a Cronenberg fan. For last week, the UK saw the theatrical release of his return to the genre space for the first time since 1999's Existence. Crime to the Future premiered in Cannes, where I saw it and shared my very early thoughts on the film in the Dispatch from Cannes, which you can listen to on this main feed. And since then, I had the chance not just to deep dive into the film with the independent film critic Clarice Lockery, a deep dive that you can listen over on our Patreon, but also speak to some of the crew behind Crimes of the Future. So what you're about to hear is a bonus episode with two interviews. First, you'll listen to my conversation with the heads of the department of the prosthetics team, Alexander Anger and Monica Paveth. And followed directly by that, you're going to listen to my chat with Cronenberg's long-term producer, Robert Lantos. Crimes of the Future has been in cinemas for a week now, and hopefully a lot of you have had the chance to see it. But if you haven't yet, this conversation does not contain any spoilers. And once you have, if you do want to listen to our deep dive and you want to support the podcast while we're on hiatus before we launch our next season, you can either leave us a little review, give us a follow on Apple Podcasts and Spotify Podcasts, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Final Ghost UK, or support us on Patreon. We're publishing bonus episodes, deep dive reviews, and mini series according to the different levels. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Anna B. Demented. And with all that said, please enjoy my conversations with the team behind Crimes of the Future. It's a very swear-friendly podcast, so feel free (laughs) if you are so inclined. (laughs) It's been very buttoned up until now, so that's (laughs) No, 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 no formalities here. (laughs) So thank you so much for for giving up a little bit of your time. Um, I wanted to start really like starting at the beginning, and I wanted to ask you guys, how did you first meet David Cronenberg? So we had a, a, yeah, very different meeting with him than I think most, ultimately. Um, We do a a Canadian horror uh, television series called Slasher that that he had, um, he was playing the lead in in season four. Um, So he obviously his his character, well, sorry, spoiler alert to everyone, (laughs) his character doesn't make um so at the at the sort of beginning of of uh filming the season he came in and we life casted you know as much of him as humanly possible um at, and the beginnings of his death was us putting a prosthetic makeup on his chest uh, and then towards the end of the season we had an entire likeness body of him uh which he obviously didn't see or interact with until we had um there was sort of like an epk and and uh press day at the I think it was our last day on, yep. on set and we sort of wheeled the body out just does a like here's you and uh you know that was a lovely little moment and then he reached out a few weeks later about about yeah sort of yeah, doing some sure. further further work which uh 
just sort of snowballed from there, which was great. Yeah. But that was a whole thing, even when he was in here of doing the life cast, because he joked around a lot about how he's, you know, put actors through this process many times. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we always sort of apologize in advance. It's never a pleasant thing to have happen. It's not horrifying, but it's, you know, it's a, it's an ordeal. Um, and he was very, you know, kind and and joking about the fact that, oh, you know, I've I've put many a person through this, so it's about time I've had the the favor returned. So it was very lovely. <laughs> so after so you got the job for Crimes of the Future by putting David Cronenberg uh through a body horror experience of his own. I love Pretty it. Much. We yeah. just yeah, yeah. <laughs> put it for a ringer and somehow that worked in the long run it was it was all good. actually even the day that he had come in for his his life cast we had yet to do you know, the makeup on him or anything like that and and so it was sort of flying blind and that you know there's no reason for him to have any idea who we were um but being the lovely humble human being that he is he sort of had mentioned like well you know i'm 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 making a film this summer and like well, we're gonna need some things and we were like <laughs> Great. Like, good luck with your film because yeah. there's no world ever that, you know, that would be the case. And then it all just came around full circle in this really lovely way. It was so great. Were you, were you fans of his work beforehand? And, and kind of as, a, as another add-on question to that, when he did reach out with the script for Crimes of the Future, what did you make of it? Oh, man. So, I mean, the... I as sacrilege let's just like put yeah yeah, Yeah. put this out there to everyone who's going to be very disappointed in us uh no i mean so i don't say neither of us are like huge like diehard horror fans like we 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 watch it and we are aware of it in that like that's the world we inhabit by doing all of this work and you know in terms of david's work there was an awareness of his catalog we'd seen a couple of his films but and I mean being Canadian also you're you know you know who David Cronenberg is if you work in film um but there wasn't this apprehension in terms of meeting him or like just because I don't know maybe we should we probably should have been more you know intimidated but yeah there was there was awareness of his work but it wasn't um yeah I don't think it was a hindrance to 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 getting into the the world of the film because when we were presented with the script again it was still sort of a moment of like is this for real like are 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 we <laughs> reading <laughs> David Cronenberg script in the sense of we might work on it I guess we are um, so I think once it was finally happening it was also quick that we were kind of like great whatever it is yes like <laughs> yeah, we're in, we're in. Yeah. The, the, whatever you're making. Yes, <laughs> and it was honestly such a short time in between everything happening, and, and we we had a, a really short runway in terms of getting things built in Canada and then mm-hmm. flying over to Athens to to continue building and then shoot. That there wasn't any time to get nervous or sort of overthink it. It's only now that we look back, being like, "Damn, okay, well, that could have been." fucking terrifying and i'm sort of glad that, that we did not have time to overthink it because that never helps anything yeah <laughs> and and can i ask you then about the the actual process of of working in the film so you get given a script imagine there's meetings and conversations and david's vision um how do you work then how do you take that and transform it into the 
I was thinking before when I was writing the questions how to refer to the designs and the people in the film <laughs> because I'm like they're not really creatures, they're people. But mm. you know, a slightly slightly different with kind of additional parts or additional organs, which I imagine creatively is quite an interesting space where you kind of need to make it futuristic, but not so futuristic that it seems completely unfathomable. Mm. Yeah. I mean, kind of I think how we thought of them from a design standpoint was that they're performance artists. And if you think of it, even the way that, you, you know, we have performance artists now where people are doing fairly extreme things in the name mm -hmm. of art. And then if you kind of, you know, fast forward that or move that forward into a world where you can do things like that to your body and <laughs> not die or um, get crazy infected or all of the things that would normally be um, an obstacle to do that sort of stuff now. I mean, I it doesn't seem that far-fetched really to think of, you know, when you compare what some people will do for performance and for uh, art now to, yeah, if you, if you had access to your own body in that way, I, I imagine people would do things like that. So it was kind of this idea of even from David of, you know, what do you think looks cool that someone could do with their own body? And then if you sort of also inject the idea that someone can grow new organs or, you know, remove them at will, then yeah, it kind of opens you up to like, sure, let's just see what looks cool and, you know, what makes sense within the, the, the world that's been created. Yeah. Yeah. Working with, um, with Carol Spear, his, you know, forever production designer, one was a dream and, and mm -hmm. two, um, just in, in having a million conversations with her and David about, you know, sort of where we were with everything. It was just a really lovely, open, collaborative conversation. There, there were, you know, some, directions that were provided um and carol had some existing um concept art um that we sort of loosely based the the beginnings of of things on so some of brecken's like uh sorry uh brecken's system of organs sort of mm -hmm. existed as, as a whole from a visual standpoint and then we did a lot of tweaking and, and broke it down into individual pieces that could then be you know cre created so that they were a tangible thing um but yeah it was it was a really open world of communication where everyone was sort of throwing out ideas and and ultimately just seeing what we all aesthetically thought looked like a neat thing which is rare well even like for example like the the odile character who gets her face sliced yes. open in the room of mirrors and whatnot mm. from a script standpoint it was just like you know I think it was something along the lines of like open. her faces, you know, it reveals with her faces just cut open. Mm -hmm. And so you're like, okay, her face is cut open. What does that mean? And like, yeah. you know, they went through a couple design uh, iterations of when you say cut open, is it this? Is it that? You know, what mm -hmm. are we looking for? Um, and even like the clinic ear man makeup, you know, it started out as he has one extra set of ears behind his own ears and it sort of evolved into just as many as you could fit on him in the amount of time that we had and yeah like so there there was definitely jumping off points and then I think I'm sure even David getting excited about the stuff as well was like oh man let's let's see where we can take this like mm -hmm. yeah never mind two years 
Yeah, fuck, I want Cover, to yeah. Cover no. <laughs> just, just in the ear, man. How many years does he end up having, actually? He had 36 years okay. on. Yeah. Okay. 36 years. Or no, sorry, 34 years and then the two other pieces. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and there were a bunch more. It's just like, here's how many we can fit on if we're going to shoot anything today. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and this kind of uh, feeds nicely into my next question. Kind of, were you concerned? And it might sound weird, but were you concerned with making the designs and the body modification of it all, the prosthetics, kind of look beautiful at the same time? Because I I don't. People have called it body horror and stuff, but. It is kind of about the body a lot, but I never found any of it, you know, horrific to look at. In fact, it was very, it was very beautiful. It was very aesthetic, very almost pleasing in the way that, yeah. you know, it is performance art. I think that's a, a one. Thank you. That's wonderful. We, that's, that's what we were going for. And I think also <laughs> what, what David was going for. And, and it feels great that that's the, the perception. Um, but I think David's, also said many times that you know he has never called himself the, you know the master of body horror it's it's always been the audiences being like hey, I'm crying, I'm crying, you know? <laughs> um and as much as obviously he i'm sure takes that title for exactly what it is his entire thought process at least from from our perspective and and the way that he likes to talk about the body is very much from a a beautiful space this is about like learning to make peace with what we are and what we are is sort of out of our control you know and and um and just having to evolve within that so i it felt none none of it ever felt like it was supposed to be um horrific or or too intense it's it's i mean I guess it is intense but but in the appropriate ways where you know it should be poking your brain a little bit to think about how we all function and and what we're all made of and ultimately how it's completely out of our hands for the most part <laughs> even in that the only specific note i think i remember us getting in terms of the the look of things was that it not be bloody okay that there be fluids and you know that it was still a body but that it shouldn't be didn't want it to feel like traumatic mm-hmm. none of these none of these things were meant to shock from a, a blood and gore standpoint it was because like you said it, it's performance really that it was mm. people showing you their insides and and whatnot in a way that they are intending to be uh to be beautiful and yeah so i think that coming from that it, it makes sense that that is the sense that people get from it because yeah, no, I mean, without blood, it's a lot of the things when you think about it, like looking at a lot of organs, even just as they are, it's fascinating, like it's beautiful mm-hmm. to look at. So it's kind of not until you see the trauma of blood and being cut open in that way that uh, that it becomes bad. <laughs> I have one really lovely memory um, in speaking of, you know, um, Saul or Vigo's insides um, mm-hmm. during his performance and it yeah very much being the conversation with david about the the lack of blood but 
like we knew from doing a gajillion surgery things, but in a television world, everybody wants blood on everything. But it's like there isn't blood in surgery unless things are going poorly. You know, like it's or not it's very controlled. It's like very it's controlled. controlled. Gushing geysers of things unless things have gone yes. off the rails. <laughs> exactly. And this was such a precise, you know, calculated performance between, you know, Leia and, and Vigo's characters that it, it made sense that this there yeah this was not a, a blood fest you know there is of course fluids and you know little bits of glistening things and so on <laughs> and so forth but it was not about you know hook up the tank and let's Let do this rip. thing <laughs> <laughs> and and on that note actually i wanted to uh a lot of the a lot of the movie and well i guess a lot of performance art in this sense that kind of works with the body and with body modification as much as the performances the extraction and the surgery itself, huge chunks of the film are then about actually Vigo, well, Saul's soul healing um, and kind of giving himself enough time to rest or just to exist in this body that keeps, you know, transforming itself or growing new organs. Kind of, Did you have conversations as well about what, even though it's not visible, kind of like what that might look like, the scars, the healing, what it looks like once the show is done, for lack of a better expression? I mean, there was a few initial conversations uh, about, because even from a design standpoint, it mm. was, you know, what does healing look like in this world? Clearly, they're not infection and that kind of thing isn't really a concern. So from trying to root it in a sort of reality that we could understand and that the audience would relate to, you know, what does that look like? And I think ultimately what was landed on was that it remain a bit nonspecific, okay. that, you know that it I don't know it didn't it, it didn't seem to feel as important that people focus on well like you know why doesn't he have more scars or this mm -hmm. or that or whatever that it was kind of extraneous to the rest mm -hmm. so there was conversations about it but I think yeah it seemed like the final the final thing we landed on was that um it yeah it remained a bit abstract of like we're not really sure how <laughs> that's that happened this, that's where the, yeah. the sci-fi comes in yeah, yeah we'll let people sort of imagine <laughs> whatever people will imagine will be far crazier than whatever we would specifically point out as being the thing and there i do know that when we were speaking specifically about about scarring because there was an evolution to that 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 as monica just said like we concluded like saul as his own entity is you know his body is working in a very different way than than many others um but then when it came to um scott speedman's character dotrice and sort of his group of humans because they are they were on a, a mission to sort of physically change themselves this wasn't something from my perspective at least that was naturally happening to, well sorry it was naturally happening to them but they were interacting with with what that evolution looked like mm -hmm. um so there is a moment where we do ski, see some scars on on their stomachs that are clearly very different um, mm -hmm. and, and older and and yeah they've been playing around with their bodies in a in a very different way than it seems Saul did. So I think that was maybe the only again not super on purpose because everything was very much like let's leave it you know this is everyone's own journey to sort of uh, you know walk through on their own. But but that's the only thing that really stayed in my mind is like this is a scar. Saul is his own entity, you know. Yeah. 
And can you talk a little bit, you know, we've, we've brought up kind of performance artists and body modification a little bit in our chat, but did you look at real people for inspirations, um, for, for the design kind of real performance artists or real, um, I'm not sure, kind of body modification artists, perhaps if that's a word for them? <laughs> yeah we did. i mean we did more honestly i think more specifically for the design of leia's character caprice's subdermal mm -hmm. implants because there was there was actually quite a fair bit of design back and forth because in the script i think it was just written as a crown um but then when it came to deciding okay what what is what do these actually look like i know david he didn't want it to seem um like again, he was very specific about it wanting to look beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, that he didn't want the whatever implant she had to sort of, I don't know, not to say that any sort of body modification would take away from anyone's beauty, but that it definitely adds uh, a layer in terms of how someone would perceive mm. that person. And he didn't really want it to change kind of her established look and, um, I guess overall aesthetic so mm -hmm. there was a lot of you know looking at what do actual subdermal implants look like and yeah ultimately i think the decision ended up just being to keep it fairly minimal in that from a story standpoint she wanted to do something but it wasn't this extreme thing that ultimately she's not quite a performance artist in the same way that saul or, or the odile character or clinic is she's just She's sort of like, I don't know, dallying with <laughs> with what it would be to modify your own body. So, yeah. And I don't know if we look at anyone specific. There was the only other thing that I can, can think is that there is or was a woman. This is going to be a terrible bit of information where I'm not going to know a name or a timeline. <laughs> or a There's this woman somewhere. She might still be alive. Um, <laughs> who... Uh, pretty notoriously uh did do some live um surgical oh, right. performance art and that was very early conversations for the odile surgery um was not mimicking that in any way but sort of using that as as, as a jumping off point of like wow this is a, a very i mean in my opinion amazing but but pretty extreme thing to be putting out there and, and doing to yourself so we did i cannot believe i don't remember her name i'm so sorry you'll just have to insert some blur mm -hmm. being like name was and she is from <laughs> germany I don't but um yeah that was the only other sort of reference point in terms of people doing extreme things in front of an audience um not with any real intention of this be becoming you know more conventionally beautiful this was just about interacting with your body and, and sort of being in control of that mm -hmm. and yeah. and and finally, really, to, to start wrapping up our conversation, I wanted to ask you guys, was there, um, what was perhaps the most, uh, challenging element of design for you from a, from a designer's, from a design perspective? And kind of what did it feel like when you actually saw it in the flesh? Mm. Uh, I mean, for different reasons than other things, I think the, the Brecken body and mm -hmm. his system and how that all interacts because of, again, spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen it, but gets cut open. Um, trying to, first of all, there was, you know, the initial design of this, what the system looks like altogether. 
but then just from the practicality of making it, you have to break it down into like, okay, this is a, this thing, which it's not a, you know, it's not a liver. It's not a lung. It's not anything. It's new things, but it had to be organs that connect together, but also exist individually. And then figuring out like, okay, these have to be inside him or cut them open. And, you know, they're playing it in the movie as if this was already done. And then he was kind of put back together and I don't know, things like that. I always find it's interesting when you're given that brief at the beginning of this has to happen and you're like, okay, cool. Yeah, no problem. It's in the back of your mind as a list. And then it comes to making it and you're like, okay, cool. We got to put <laughs> some organs into a body that's intact. So then I'm going to get cut open and again, try to make it all look beautiful still because it, even that, while it's, it's a shocking thing in the movie because it's a child it's also there's like that element of beauty to it so it's you know how do you make this system for a kid and make it look beautiful mm -hmm. while also shocking which yeah. yeah I found particularly challenging to like decide on the look of all of those things. yeah totally I think um just in in terms of a technical build standpoint um Vigo's ports for as straightforward as, as I mean, it wasn't straightforward in that we, we obviously shopped a gajillion designs before we decided on what that look was and placement and so on and so forth. But then it sort of becomes the, the secondary conversation of, okay, you know, these in an ideal world are, are prosthetic applications. Um, but then you are factoring in your shooting timeline of what that shooting schedule looks like heat um, just, just all of the practicality of mm -hmm. We want to make all the things in the world, but if it's never going to make it to camera, then there's no point, you know, so so sort of reverse engineering the idea of what's an easy option to put on quickly, given costume coverage and so on and so forth. Also, that gives you enough enough depth that for some of the, the scenes where um, anybody's interacting with those ports, there's there's space to go mm -hmm. um, versus any time where he was, you know, exposing himself enough that we could see that, it, you know, it's it's his stomach with small prosthetic pieces on it. So we had built all of the different iterations of that, knowing full well that that there were going to be days where we would have the time to put on a prosthetic and it made sense because of the interaction. And there were other days where it was just going to be a faster, we lovingly referred to them as like the skin vests, but it was just, you know, he, he we had the leeway of his costume and Vigo being an angel. And, um, and so we could just sort of zip him in and out. And then that way when, you know, it was 45 degrees and... He was having to run around in, in 800 layers of beautiful clothing. We could at least give him the breather of like, okay, it's lunch. Let's take this off. You know? <laughs> Let's, <laughs> Let's take, take this, this rubber stopping wet vest <laughs> off you. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, in my mind, it was, it's sort of the the dance of, of sure, ideally, we it's forever a beautiful makeup that we can spend mm. 800 hours putting on somebody. But, you know, that that's not going to happen on the day necessarily. So, <laughs> yeah, finding happy solutions. <laughs> Thank you both so much for giving me the combination of words skin vest. Uh, we'll <laughs> never get over that. That's <laughs> very marks, just so like <laughs> Alex, Monica, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you both. Thank, thank you. you so much. And uh, congratulations on your work on the film. It is truly impressive. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.
Robert, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And um, I was privileged enough to see the film at its premiere in Cannes. So I wanted to kick off by by asking you about your long-standing collaboration with with David. You know, how how would you describe it and how do you think it has evolved since you first started working together? Well, hello, Anna. Um the first time that David and I worked together was on Crash. So 25 years ago. Um, and it hasn't changed since. And every t- it's, uh, it's um, it, David Cronenberg is one of those rare creatures who are remaining today in the business of making films. He's a master. There are not many. There are many filmmakers, but not many who are actually at the top of the craft the way he is. So the collaboration that we have is essentially, uh, we work closely together during the development phase and the casting and the major decisions that are all made before production begins. Choice of men, choice of key locations, choice of key crew, um, scheduling, those things. And then once production begins, um, it's David's show. And uh, which is a it's a it's a rare pleasure for a producer to be able to to know that everything is in under control and in the best possible hands, and I can actually focus on other things. Um, and then we in post production, it's more or less the same. Other than uh, spend some time in the editing room together. Um, talk things through, um, and very, very rare exception. I can't actually, I, over the years, uh, we essentially agree that this is how things should unfold and how they should be. So it's a peaceful, collaborative um, circumstance that has not changed in the 25 years and four films that we have made together. And would you would you say that kind of um, I'm always very genuinely curious about the relationship between a producer and a filmmaker, especially when it lasts over several projects and, and several years. Do you see as part of your role to protect David's vision, uh, which is completely unique and has been so groundbreaking in so many different ways over the years? Yeah, the co- you know, look, the interaction between producer and director varies and can vary quite dramatically depending on who is the director and who is the producer. Um, and my relationship with David is unique and it doesn't apply to my relationship with every other director. Um, it, David, as you just pointed out, has a unique vision. You know, only Cronenberg can actually make a Cronenberg film. That is not necessarily true of every film and every filmmaker, but it is of him. So if one decides to make a film with Cronenberg, then you let Cronenberg make a Cronenberg film and uh, do everything. In, and I saw, yeah, my job is to do everything in my power to, to use your word, to protect that vision and to allow it really not so much protected because it's not in danger. It's not, a, there's no one attacking it, but rather to enable it to create the circumstances, situation where it can be 
where the vision can unfold. So, um, and can you, you know, that includes casting of actors who are at a level where, which allows the, which ensures that the film will be distributed worldwide, that it can be financed. Um, the choice of where are we going to make this film? Well, some, that has something to do with aesthetics and something to do with where is it financially feasible? Because if it's not feasible financially, it won't be made. Um, so these kinds of things are, I consider them enabling more than protecting. And can you mention a little bit the 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 evolution of crimes of the future i've read in in several kind of interviews and 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 write-ups that it was a project that was gestating for a while and then got put back in the drawer and then came back out of the drawer um what has been its journey to finally getting made now it has a very checkered past um it uh, as you put it 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 has been it sort of has been in and out of the drawer several times. We were originally going to make it, I think it was 2002 um, or three, 2002. And then and then things came up and then it was David who decided to let's push it let's do some, to do something else instead and he went back into the drawer. came back out again a few years later, only briefly only to go back in again. Um, and uh, it resurfaced again, I think it was a couple of years ago. Um, you know, I, I believe it, it was, I, I asked David to read it one more time. Um, I, I was more of a, I was the champion of this project, even though it was David who wrote it, and that I thought it, this really needs to be, deserves to be made. So he then reread it again, and then he called me back and he said, "You know, you're right. You know, um, I don't know why we haven't made this film, but let's make it." And the reality of it was that it, even though you know, it was written 20 years ago, the the themes that it deals with um, and the, the, the and that it probes are, I mean, 20 years ago they would have been. It would have been uh, prophetic. Uh, today, it actually um, maybe not no no longer prophetic, but rather uh, real. Uh, it's the world in which we are beginning to live. Um, so, things like the invasion of plastic in the food supply—it's um, now here upon us. Um, so, those kinds of themes are, I think, where if anything more relevant now than they would have been then when it was just a vision of the future. So now crimes of the future is a little bit less about the future than it's about the present. And can you speak to what was it that made you champion this film as it was getting put back in the drawer and taken out and then not kind of really gelling um, to, to become a reality? Kind of what made you keep coming back to this film and asking David to keep to look at it again, to that it deserves to be made? Well, I can only give you a really sort of primitive answer to your question, which is that I really like it. <laughs> you know, I had a, it, 
it's in, it, it impacted me when I first read it long ago. And every time since, whenever I've reread it, I thought, wow, you know, this is a, uh, there has never been a film like this made. That's mm-hmm. to me kind of what turns me on is making something that is not a formulaic uh, rephrasing of what has come before. Mm. And some people have described this film as a as a body horror, which I find interesting in a way. I understand why people say that, but I don't necessarily share that share that opinion. Um, what has been some of the most interesting reactions to the film that have either moved or impacted you in some of the way as you know as people around the world have been able to see crimes of the future? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I don't think it's, you know, it's not a horror film. I don't think there is anything horrible about it or horror. But you can label, you can put it, put that label on it, body horror, but I don't think that would do the film much justice. Um, it, it, <clears throat> there was some concern that there were, during one or two scenes, there would be, extreme reactions in the audience and maybe there'll be walkouts or people fainting, but none of that has happened. Or if it has, I wasn't there. And so I don't know about it. But every time I've seen the film with an audience, um, there have not been any walkouts or any particular, I mean, I've seen audience members faint during scenes in films, but not during, not this. One. I mean, has the, do you think kind of the you've mentioned that when you first read it when it was first written it felt very prophetic um do you feel like the reaction to the film now which does feel very um very of the moment whether by by accident or by design it feels uh extremely extremely zeitgeisty for lack of a better word has do you think that the audience now is is ready to receive a film like this and to understand it in a way that maybe had it been made 20 years ago would have been more difficult? Well, judging from reactions to date, I think the answer to that question is yes. I think it's more timely now and certainly more digestible for an audience than it might have been 20 years ago. Um, And... um. You mentioned a few times kind of the the importance of cast, especially for a, a film like this. Um, can you talk a little bit about the the putting together of a cast? You know, Fika Mortensen has worked with with David Cronenberg a number of times. Their collaboration is very um, set. But can you talk about kind of putting together this ensemble almost of performers? Well, Vigo was first in. And uh, actually, he initially wanted to play a supporting role and didn't want to play the lead. Uh, that took some convincing on David's part. Um, anyway, so after Vigo, um, casting Leah and casting Kirsten and, and Scott and the rest it kind of really gelled really quickly. Um, I think in part because it's David Cronenberg, and I think in part because it was with actors. A lot of actors would like to play, would work with Vigo. So between Cronenberg and Vigo, 
um, I think you know it was it was I think it was too attractive to turn down for anybody that we went to. So I mean, and those roles were cast very very quickly after. And I, I did want to say, you know, the I thought that the two the two women leads in the film, Leia and Kirsten, were um, I think were spectacular. Um, we um, not that everybody else wasn't, but I thought we had um, it was a uh, you know neither David nor I had ever worked with either of them, so it was you know you don't quite know how things will turn out until you work with somebody. But I thought they were both revel both of them, Leia and Kristen, were like revelations, and neither of them had played a role like the one that they play in this film. Uh, they, I mean, they actually took these roles on and made them more robust than, than the page. Robert, I'm really sorry we don't have more time with you, but thank you so much for well, for making the you, time Anna, for and for uh, for coming on board for this conversation. Thank you.